0: find is that rather than obeying God's commands, even after they had explicitly promised to follow them, they instead disobey. And So Judges 3 begins the cycle of the judges in which the Israelites fall away and the Lord delivers them. Let's read from verse 1. These are the nations the Lord left in order to test all those in Israel who had experienced None of the wars in Canaan. This was to teach the future generations of the Israelites how to fight in battle, especially those who had not fought before. These nations included the five rulers of the Philistines and all of the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites who lived in the Lebanese mountains from Mount Baal-Hermon as far as the entrance to Hamath. The Lord let them to test Israel to determine if they would keep the Lord's commands he had given their ancestors through Moses. But they settled among the Canaanites. Hethites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. The Israelites took their daughters as wives for themselves. Gave their own daughters to their sons. And worshipped their gods. The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They forgot the Lord their God and worshiped the Baals and the Asherahs. The Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he sold them to King Cushan-Rishathaim of Aram-Naharam. And the Israelites served him 8 years. The Israelites cried out to the Lord. So the Lord raised up Othniel, son of Kenaz. Caleb's youngest brother, as a deliverer to save the Israelites. The Spirit of the Lord came on him, and he judged Israel. Othniel went out to battle, and the Lord handed over King Cushan Rishathaim of Aram to him, so that Othniel overpowered him. Then the land had peace for forty years, and Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you this morning for your help. If you don't help us, our eyes will be blind to see your word. Our hearts will be closed. Our souls will wither away. But we know that you flower each promise of your word. We know that your word will not return void. So we ask God that you would cause a delight in you to bloom in our hearts as we meditate on your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I hate tests. I do. I hate tests. Uh, You might want to close the ears of your children, but I had a 2.4 in high school, uh, mainly because I strongly dislike testing. I remember taking the ACT. And during one section, I was so tired, I decided that if I couldn't come up with an answer in 10 seconds, I'd mark C and move on. So I could spend half an hour napping in the middle of my ACT. I remember sitting in math class one morning and my math teacher looked at me and he said, you know, you will need to know this math someday. Class was calculus. I can tell you now, I've not used a single ounce of calculus in my life since graduating from high school. So why bother? Why bother with testing? Why not just get a 2.4 like I did? Well, what I wish someone had told me in high school was that the purpose wasn't just so that I would learn mathematics. The point of me learning calculus wasn't so that I could solve complicated equations when I became an adult. The purpose of calculus was to teach me to think and to learn how to engage difficult problems and to persist, and to overcome. And that that skill of learning, that skill of growing in knowledge, is the skill that you obtain, and that you use for the rest of your life. If I had known that, I probably would have had better grades. When we encounter obstacles to our life in Christ, oftentimes we can be overwhelmed as well. Challenges may Chain ourselves from progress. And when we encounter such difficulties, we can start to ask ourselves what's the point? The Israelites were given such a challenge. They were tasked to complete their conquest of the land. But instead of rising up to the challenge, they collapsed to compromise. What about you? When obstacles come, in your life, what do you do? There's a main command this morning. Overcome the obstacles of obedience. Overcome the obstacles of obedience. Three reasons. Because number one, obstacles train you. Obstacles train you. Reason number two, obstacles test you. Obstacles test you. And reason number three, obstacles expose you. Obstacles expose you. Let's look again at verse one. These are the nations the Lord left in order to test all those in Israel who had experienced none of the wars in Canaan. You can see here that the Lord is the one who leaves the nations. It might seem obvious at first, something to glance over, but it actually lays the foundation for how we ought to view the obstacles that the Lord can bring. It's not like God wanted the Israelites' experience to be as easy and smooth as possible and somehow missed a spot, leaving these nations. God could have absolutely removed these nations if he wanted to. This is the same God who made the world superpower, Egypt, fall to its knees at the hands of its slaves. Surely, he would be able to take care of a few puny pockets of power in the promised land. Now, a note here before we get into our reasons. I I didn't say that we are to overcome the obstacles to obedience. It's not like obedience is something that we aspire to, and these bumps or these Blockades or these barriers prevent us from obeying. Obedience is hard. And just because there's an obstacle, that doesn't give us permission to disobey. The Lord is in control of all things. The Lord is the one who is leaving these nations there for Israel. And he gives us obstacles as part of our obedience. Obstacles are actually integral To our obedience. In fact, God gives two reasons for why he gives obstacles in our obedience. And the first is our first point this morning. Number one, obstacles train you. Obstacles train you. Let's look at verse two. This was to teach the future generations of the Israelites how to fight in battle. Especially those who had not fought before. These nations included the five rulers of the Philistines and all of the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites who lived in the Lebanese mountains from Mount Baal Hermon as far as the entrance to Hamath. The Lord leaves these nations to train future generations in battle because this generation had never fought before. These nations are listed as pretty much everywhere in the promised land. So all of Israel everywhere was to obey in in this command to conquer these nations. And that continued obedience that they would do required a growth in ability. They would need to learn to fight. These people were all wimps. They had never fought in war before. And skill was necessary for this nation to be able to protect its borders and maintain its identity as the people of God. They needed to be separate from the other nations. They needed to be holy. In order to do that, they needed to grow. God intended this challenge, this obstacle to help them to grow. And you, in your Christian life, need obstacles in order to grow. I mean, imagine if Super Mario only had the first level, and then you finished the entire game. It'd be easy to beat, but the game would also be boring. What makes video games fun is the progression of difficulty as you continue to play. Right? If, if Bowser was as easy to kill as Goomba, then you wouldn't play Super Mario. As the levels get harder, you get better. And God loves us too much to just offer us one level in this life. He leaves us obstacles in our way to help us grow in our obedience to Him. Friend, could it be that the persistent temptation in your life is a way that God is pushing you to die to yourself and to live in Christ? Could it be that that trial that, that is in your way is the way that God intends to deepen your obedience to Him? Could it be that the thorn in your flesh is the way that God perfects His power in the midst of your weakness? Obstacles are the forge by which God fortifies our soul. These obstacles don't prevent us from obeying, but are the means, the way by which God intends us to grow. In our obedience. Obstacles don't prevent our obedience. Any more than weights in the gym. Prevent us from growing in our strength. And God loves us too much. To let our spiritual muscles and minds atrophy. From indifference and ease. So that's the first reason. Because obstacles train you. Here's a second reason. Obstacles test you. Obstacles test you. Verse 4. The Lord left them to test Israel, to determine if they would keep the Lord's commands he had given their ancestors through Moses. The second reason for placing these obstacles of obedience was so that God could test Israel to determine if they would follow his commands. Now, it's not as though God doesn't know what the Israelites are going to do. In Deuteronomy 28 and 29, God lays out the blessings of obedience and the curses of disobedience. If you obey me, you will prosper in the land I'm going to give you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. You will be cast out from the land. But it's interesting that in the beginning of Deuteronomy chapter 30... The way that God opens a saying through Moses, he says something fascinating. After listing all these blessings and these curses, he, he opens with this sentence. He says, when all these things happen to you, the blessings and curses I have set before you. He says, when? He doesn't say if. It's not if you obey, you'll be blessed, and if you disobey, you'll be cursed. God is actually presuming that all of these things are going to happen. So these blessings and curses are inevitable. God already knew that Israel was going to fall, which is why he tells them what he will do when they return to him and after they inevitably disobey him and are cast out of the land. So you may ask, then why should God test them to begin with if he already knows everything that the Israelites are going to do? Well, the reason is because of Deuteronomy, Chapter 29, verse 29. And I'll read it for us. God says this. The hidden things belong to the Lord our God. But the revealed things belong to us and our children forever. So that we may follow all the words of this law. According to Deuteronomy 29, 29. God's knowledge of the future. His plan of redemption. His orchestration of the cosmos is not for you to figure out. That's not your job. What is for you to do is the revealed things. His word, God's commands, telling you to obey him, to to do what he commands. So what's the test here? The test isn't to see if God's plan is going to work out. The test is to see whether or not Israel is actually going to listen to the information and the commands that God had given them to reveal the state of their heart, To see if they're going to obey. That's our responsibility. Brothers and sisters, you don't need to figure out what God is trying to do in every single nook and cranny in your life. God is not obligated to send you lengthy emails with comprehensive explanations for every single obstacle that comes your way. We don't need an explanation. What we need is obedience. We need obedience. And unlike how you grow in your skill and how you develop as a person in your obedience, God does not permit a progression when it comes to obeying him. You either obey him or you don't. God does not permit a delayed partial obedience in the name of progress. He actually expects full obedience. He expects full obedience. Partial obedience was not an option. In the beginning of the book of Judges and in the book of Joshua, Israel had already begun the conquest in the promised land. They had already slayed multiple nations and obeyed God. But at some point they stopped. And God wasn't satisfied with the partial fulfillment of his command. God expects full obedience. Delayed obedience was also not an option. The Israelites couldn't push their obedience to the next year Or the next month, week, or day. God wasn't satisfied with them hitting pause on his command. He expected immediate obedience. Christians, our obedience is not optional. Obstacles don't excuse our obedience. Each obstacle is actually a test to see whether or not you will continue to be obedient. Joseph wouldn't have been able to excuse sexual immorality because Potiphar's wife was too attractive. Jesus wouldn't have been able to excuse falling into temptation from Satan because he was too hungry. Our excuses aren't good enough. And so what do the Israelites do? They fail. They fail miserably. You see that in verse 5. Read with me. But they settled among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. The Israelites took their daughters as wives for themselves, gave their own daughters to their sons, and worshipped their gods. God had left these obstacles to test Israel But, instead of obeying God, they settled. They dwelt among the people that they were not to associate with. Their delay became complacency. Their complacency became compromise. And their compromise became idolatry. Maybe, in response to obstacles in your life, you've decided to obey partially. Maybe you've decided to delay obedience and take care of it tomorrow. Maybe you've become comfortable in your disobedience. I want to warn you. You cannot call yourself a child of God and still be a slave of sin. You cannot call yourself to be a child of God, and still be a slave of sin. That's part of the reason why we engage in church discipline. It's not because we enjoy excommunication. It's painful for us. But it's because we recognize that the seduction of sin is so poisonous, so destructive to ourselves, that we need to, in love, speak clearly about the dangers of sin. I hope that you've Reach out to the brother that is currently in stage three of discipline. I hope that you're warning him. I hope that you're reflecting in your own life about your own sins and where you may be becoming hardened to sin's deception. Israel fails the test. So what happens when you fail? You can see what happens with what God does in the rest of this passage. so Here's reason number three why we ought to overcome our obstacles. Because obstacles expose you. Expose you. First judge in the book of Judges is Othniel. And Othniel's story is a bit of a template from which the rest of the judges begin to descend and get worse from. There's not a ton of details in this story. It's pretty straightforward. It's meant to be kind of the typical story that you should be expecting for the rest of the book. Let's read from verse 7. The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They forgot the Lord their God and worshipped the Baals and the Asherahs. Israel did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They forgot God. And they worshipped other gods. They forgot who God was and what he had done for them. All the work that God had done for them. All the redeeming that God had done for them. The clear commands that God had provided for them. They forgot all of it. And instead, they looked for something more tangible. They turned to idols they worshipped Baal and Asherah. Now, these idols can seem a bit irrelevant for us today. I doubt any of us are tempted to see wooden statues and, and lie prostrate before them. But when you know what Baal and Asherah represent, what they mean, you can start to see the significance of Israel's sin. Asherah was like a pole sticking in the ground. And Asherah was a fertility goddess. People believed that if you worshipped Asherah, you would have abundant offspring and easier pregnancy and childbirth. And Baal was a fertility god as well, but he offered fertility in harvest as well as in one's own life. So, so Asherah on one hand offers smooth childbearing. and on the other, Baal offers ease as you work the ground. Smooth childbearing. Easy work. Does that remind you of anything in the Bible? What does it remind you of? Yeah, it should remind you of the fall in Genesis 3. What was the curse of the woman? Pain in childbearing. What was the curse of the man? Painful labor working the ground. These idols were more than just statues. They were an escape Idols offer sin without any consequence. Israel didn't desire obedience. They were chasing convenience. Israel's idols offered a convenient escape from the difficulty of obedience from the fall. You can see it right there. What are your idols? What do you run to to escape The difficulties of this life. Idols offer escape but are often useless. It doesn't matter what they are. But when it comes to escaping the effects of the fall, whether it be pain, whether it be labor or death, idols are about as useless as a slab of wood. And God sees the idolatry of Israel and his anger burns. Let's read from verse 8. The Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he sold them the King Cushan Rishathaim of Aram Naharam. And the Israelites served him eight years. He sells them the King Cushan Rishathaim of Aram Naharam. Try to say that five times fast. But the king's name is more than just a tongue twister. His name, Kushan Rishatham, means literally king of double evil in the region of double rivers. So kind of like call it trouble, make it double. That's kind of the idea that they're coming up with here. So this name is literally evil, extreme wickedness, not just bad, but super bad. God's Anger burns against the evil of the Israelites. Against their disobedience. Against their idolatry. And so what he does is he sells them to their true king. They're not the subjects of God. They're the subjects of evil. That's who they really serve. Verse 9. The Israelites cried out to the Lord. So the Lord raised up Othniel son of Kinaz. Caleb's youngest brother as a deliverer to save the Israelites. It's clear, based on this verse, that Israel didn't enjoy their time with King super evil. In fact, they were so tormented, so weighed down by this king, that they cried out to the Lord. Sin had let them down. Sin will always let you down. He is a cruel master. It promises convenience. And so it shackles you to disappointment, to sorrow, and difficulty. So the people cry out to the Lord. They ask for His help. And God doesn't cackle and delight in their dismay. Instead... He hears their cry and he raises up Othniel as a deliverer to save the Israelites. Now, Othniel was a brave dude. We don't know much about him, but in Judges 1, what happens is he obeys the Lord in conquering the land, and because he conquers a particular region of the land, he he wins Aksa, his wife, who's from the tribe of Judah. And so, Othniel obeys the Lord. In his command, he he goes out and he actually conquers in the name of the Lord. And Othniel also obeys the Lord in not marrying a Canaanite, in marrying someone who is devoted to the Lord. In other words, this, this guy, Othniel, is kind of everything that Israel isn't. Israel disobeys. Othniel doesn't. Othniel is presented as the model man. He does what the Israelites don't do. He does what the Israelites should have done. Verse 10. The Spirit of the Lord came on him, and he judged Israel. Othniel went out to battle, and the Lord handed over cushion rishathaim of Aram to him, so that Othniel overpowered him. The Spirit of the Lord comes on Othniel, and he judges Israel. Now, we could talk a lot about what it means for the Spirit of the Lord to come upon him. I'm not going to get into any of that. The point here isn't whether or not the Spirit kind of gives you super saiyan powers. The point here is that God is actually involved in the redemption of his people. I mean, look at what God does here in verse 10. God empowers Othniel to go and to judge Israel. Othniel goes out to battle, and Othniel doesn't just slay king evil. The Lord hands over Extreme wickedness to him. And Othniel overpowers him. Othniel is the one that saves Israel. But it's clear that God is involved in every single step of this process. He empowers Othniel. He hands wickedness to him. God is the one that is saving Israel. Israel could not save itself. It couldn't raise up the model man itself. It needed supernatural strength. Israel needed outside help. Israel needed God. As a quick side note, it's it's interesting that it doesn't say that Othniel saves Israel. He could use that word, saved. But he doesn't save Israel. Instead, he judges Israel. Which is a really odd word to use. It's like a court case. Like he's going out and he's settling the dispute of Israel. We'll get back to that later. Verse 11. Then... The land had peace for 40 years, and Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. What's the result of God's deliverance? Peace. The land has peace for 40 years. The land has peace for 40 years. That's the same amount of time that Israel has spent wandering in the wilderness before entering into the promised land the same amount of time that it took for a complete generation of Israel to, to pass away so that a new generation can come. The idea here in verse 11 is that there was a complete generation or a full period, a completeness to this period of peace. You can also see here that that peace is tied to the life of Othniel, right? After 40 years of peace, Othniel dies. As long as Othniel was alive, the land had peace. But after he dies, you see that they fall back into sin from verse 12. But as long as Othniel stayed alive, as long as he continued to to lead Israel as a judge, the land had peace. So you have God's people in God's place, living under God's rule. And rather than slavery... Rather than being made subjects to a cruel leader, this land has peace. Zooming out this story on the surface seems pretty simple, and that's my intent. It should feel pretty straightforward. The, the Israelites turn away, God sells them to an evil king, they, they ask God for help, God raises up someone to save them. But this story goes much deeper than just a quick overview. In fact, God is intending to use this story to show his plan for all of humanity through these four, short, five short verses. See, Othniel isn't just a brave man. His name translates to God is my strength. But his name also has a double meaning, kind of like a double entendre. It, it means God is my strength, but it also meant lion God. So you have this guy named Lion who is part of the tribe of Judah. Is this starting to sound familiar to you? Genesis 49 9 says this Judah is a young lion. My son, you returned from the kill. Verse 10. The scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff between his feet until he whose right it is comes and the obedience of the people belongs to him. Who is this lion of Judah? Jesus. Or, I guess, Othniel. I mean, Othniel's name is literally the lion. But his name is more than just a name. Othniel is a symbol. Othniel is is a symbol. In fact, this seemingly simple story is simultaneously a historical event that actually happened and a symbolic story, an allegory, a sign of a greater deliverer to come. Let's look at the story again, but with an eye to the symbols. If you look down at the verses, starting from verse 7, I'm just going to read the story again from the top. I'm just going to read it again, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to replace the words with what they actually mean, with what they symbolize, what the, what the words themselves mean. Let me just read again. Look with me from verse 7. The people did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They forgot the Lord and worshipped idols. The Lord's anger burned against his people, and he sold them to extreme wickedness. And the people served evil they cried out to the lord so he raised up the lion of judah as a deliverer to save his people the spirit of the lord came upon him and he cleared the guilt of his people the lion went out to battle and god handed over extreme wickedness to him so that the lion overpowered it then the land had peace completely What do you see here in this story? Millennia, before the arrival of the Messiah, you can see a sign of the gospel. This passage is about more than just Israel's idolatry. It's about more than just turf wars around Mesopotamia. This passage is a foretaste. It's a hint. It's a sign of the grand redemption plan that God has in store for his people. This is the gospel. If you're not a Christian here, this why I'm glad you're here. This is the one part of the sermon that you should probably listen to. This is the good news that we believe as Christians. That everyone fails to pass the test of obedience. These obstacles come and our knees buckle. We fail. But what no one could have expected was that this deliverer, This person to come to save us as we cry out to the Lord would not be any mere man, but would be God himself, truly God and truly man. Jesus Christ lives the perfect life that we never could. He obeyed perfectly and surpassing all human expectation. The way he overpowered wickedness would not be through physical war, but would be through death on a Roman cross. And in his death, he pays the court penalty for those who trust in him. He clears that debt. He judges us perfectly. And rather than having peace end with his death, Jesus rose from the dead. And in his resurrection, Jesus declares victory over all sin, wickedness, and death, even death itself. And friends, if peace is tied to the life of the deliverer, then Jesus secures peace forever. He rose from the dead. He's living everlastingly, which means our salvation is everlasting. This is good news. I would urge you, if you don't believe this good news, trust in this Jesus. Look to this lion. We read earlier in Revelation 5 how no one could open the scroll. And how the voice declares to look to the Lion of Judah. And John looks up and he sees a slain lamb. A perfect sacrifice. Your debt paid. Your victory won. The Lord can be your salvation. Trust in Him. Christians, we don't Overcome obstacles in our, be- our obedience in order to obtain salvation. God has provided everything that we need in Christ. In fact, obstacles in this instance become the way not just that God trains us, not just the way that He tests us, but the way that God exposes us, exposes our failures, exposes our inadequacies. Obstacles come to remind us to look to Jesus and not to ourselves. So when obstacles come in your life, look to Christ. Look to Him. Remember what He's done for you. Remember the price He paid for you. And when you do, you can focus on true obedience. Where your hands and your heart are fully devoted to the Lord. In the grace that is greater than any of our failures, in a grace that is greater than any of our obstacles. As Richard Sibbs wrote, grace conquers us first, and by it we conquer all else, whether corruptions within us or temptations from outside us. Christians don't overcome the obstacles of obedience by ourselves. We do it in Christ. When you trip and you stumble in the face of temptation, look to Jesus. When trials drown you in sorrow and heartache, look to Jesus. When life leaves you battered, weary, and defeated, look to Jesus. He has broken your shackles Evil. He has fought your battle. He has cleared your guilt. He establishes peace. Trust the lion of Judah. Trust him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the abundant grace. That's in Christ. We thank you that you haven't left us to our own devices. But have provided us a sufficient savior. A capable savior. Who's able to do everything. In every avenue that we fail. And we ask God. That we would embrace and treasure that grace. And that in Christ. We'd be able to see your right purposes for us in the challenges and obstacles that come in our life. We can only do this by your grace. And we ask God that you would come quickly so we can sing praises with our physical eyes, seeing you, praising you, the lion and the lamb. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.